Hey, what's up, guys? This is Pastor Austin from Good Shepherd Church, and this is our podcast. So happy you're tuning in this week to stay caught up on what the Lord's doing in us and through us. I hope this content encourages you. I hope it challenges you, builds up your love for Jesus. Hope you enjoy the message. We love you. Hey, happy belated Thanksgiving to you all. Did you have, did you have a good Thanksgiving? Who thinks they ate the most? Just quick pull hands like just, yeah. Did anyone achieve, um, Brady talked about a, a gravy coma after the Thanksgiving meal. Anyone get there on their own? I was talking to somebody this morning. They're like, I, mission accomplished. I took one thing from Brady's sermon, put it right into practice that week, and I went into a coma from all the gravy I ate on Thursday. So, um, man, it's a good weekend. It's a fun weekend. I love, I love getting into the Christmas season. Who's decorated, by the way? Come on. Uh, who, here, let's ask who the heathens in church are. Who's not decorated yet? No, I'm just kidding. These are the jokes. You don't have to raise your hand. I'm kidding. Um, no, we, uh, I, I love Christmas time. I think it is the most wonderful season, not just because of the decorations. I love the festivities. I do love gift giving. I love all of these different things, but there is nothing like the anticipation of Christ coming in Advent, his incarnation, and like Taylor talked about, and then anticipating his second arrival. So today we're jumping back into our values series that we've been going through, just calling it Family Values, talking about some of the things that we want to continually remind our minds and orient our heart towards um, is, are these values that we've been walking through. Today we're going to be talking about the value, we is greater than me. We is greater than me. Um, I've, I love the quote. I've heard it said oftentimes, uh, if you want to go fast when you're doing something, go alone. And isn't that true? Right? Like, like anyone that just doesn't work in the government right now is like, yeah, amen. Like that is just how it works. If you just get rid of some red tape, get rid of the, uh, all the OSHA things that are happening at work. Like you could, if you want to just go fast, go alone. Right? But if you want to go far, go together. Right? This is something that if you, if you want to go quick, like I can clean my basement so quickly without my kids. I just can I just throw a lot of stuff in a trash bag. I put some of the stuff back on the shelf and then we're good to go, you know? But if I want to go far, like if I want to make that a habit that's long standing in my household, we got to go together. I got to teach them. I got to show them where things goes. Like th- this is true every, in every area of your life. If you, want to, if you want to accomplish something quickly, do it by yourself. But if you want to take the time to teach somebody, if you want to go together with a group, you will go much further in the long run. Right? I, I, I love this topic of we is greater than me because I just, I see it playing out in this place all the time. And I want to, again, I just want to call these things out all the more. Uh, we is greater than me is having this posture that doesn't think of yourself too highly, but sees, the, sees the, uh, the, the goodness of the group as more important than what's happening for yourself. It doesn't see you as the main part of the story. Therefore, other people can get credit and you're not, you're not selfish about that. You're not maybe um, um, self-aware of that. You just are celebrating other people having awesome things happen around you. It's, it's, the, it's the Dave Gackles of the world who showed up this morning, uh, 6, 30, 7 o'clock to clean the toilets before anyone else knew or anyone else got here. Right? It, it's the worship team showing up every week at 7, 7 o'clock, 7.30, making sure that we have worship. And isn't worship just been awesome recently? Isn't the worship team just killing it recently? Yes. Right, it's behind, it's, and it's more than that. It, it goes into your workplace. It goes into your home. It's the parent. Here, here's, here's like peak maturity, and you will feel this viscerally. Like the two-year-old never asks itself, what, what can I do for the good of the family? Right, some of you with two-year-olds, like you know that, right? Like that, that stings a little. Um, even the adolescent, moms, moms, like let me just, um, you're, you might just erupt into praise right now. What would it be like if your adolescent teenager almost graduated from high school, what if they just came to you one day and they were just like, hey, what, what, could I, what could I do for you today? Any chores you want done? Could I just knock anything out real quick? What's on your to-do list? Could I help you out real quick? I saw some of your faces right now and I think somebody just spoke in a tongue for the very first time. <laughs> right? 
but it is the maturity of the adult that a lot of times we, in our family's sake, we, we lay by the wayside things that we want for ourselves to accomplish things for the good of the family, right? Yes. We is greater than me. I, I, thought, I thought through just like a couple different intros that I could have used. Um, if so, if this one doesn't work, I'll use the other one next service and see if it works any better. <laughs> but um, I've kind of had this like semi-horrifying thought for the last maybe, I don't know, 10 years. And when I was first made aware of it, um, I heard at one point that ants outnumber humans six million to one. <laughs> Which like by itself, isn't that like, it's not that intimidating, right? Like if I see an ant in my backyard, it's not like I actually have a phobia of ants. I don't even know what kind of technical phobia that would be called. But I, I, one ant, like it's no big deal. You could just squish it, right? Even like you see that like, like little pile, whatever's happening when there's like a hundred, hundreds of ants all like in a pile in the summertime. You just kind of like kick it with your shoe and you're like, I just killed like 150 ants. Like, I don't even know, you know? It's not that intimidating until you actually stop to think about like they've actually done research and they've estimated that at the baseline, at the baseline, ants, there, there's 40 quadrillion ants on the planet. Minimum. That means there's 2 million at, at the, like they estimate it somewhere between a factor of two. It could be as much of a factor of 10 that they're off but at least 2 million ants to every one person. Now, I'm not scared of one ant, but if, two, if they, imagine, imagine if ants ever got their ducks in a row, they could take over the world, couldn't they? Like you talk about the ultimate we is greater than me situation is that if there were 2 million ants working against every one person, we would be in a lot of trouble, wouldn't we? Man, I'm sorry if I just ruined the rest of your day. Maybe that won't. Maybe that does nothing for you. But I, I've kind of thought about that frequently sometimes when I see them kind of underneath my, underneath my uh, back patio. I'm like, are they planning to just sink the house like someday? Because they could and I wouldn't know. But we is greater than me. We is greater than me. They, they are, we, and if you think about it, we are more powerful together than we could ever be by ourselves, right? And so we're going to look at this today and we're going to look at how this value statement, it, it really, it has to get in every single one of us because I would actually argue it's the beginning point of our faith, really, because it starts with humility. Our, our culture is so riddled with, so full of individualism that you're actually celebrated for being individualistic in our culture, aren't we? That kind of like rugged, pick yourself up by your own bootstraps. I'm a self-made man. I'm a self-made woman. Like I can do these things. I can, I can. All of this me-centered mentality that we live in is so normalized in the world we're living in that things like contempt or things like division become celebrated and, and just commonplace because we're so hyper-celebratory uh, of the individual. So we're going to turn to Philippians to see how our individual individualism is one of the first things that dies when we encounter Jesus. So if you have your Bible, we're going to look at Philippians today. We're going to be only in Philippians, uh, one letter, one book. It's in your New Testament. If you're newer to the Bible, go ahead and grab a Bible if you have it with you. Open it up on your phone if you have your phone with you. And uh, we'll be in Philippians chapter one to start. Philippians, it is one of the first uh, groups of followers of Jesus that Paul helped plant after he becomes a Christian. Paul gets this church started. This church is going really well. It's, it's a little bit of a different kind of letter. When we read through Paul's different letters of the, the New Testament, what you see a lot of is he's bringing really sharp correction to really pointed topics. In Philippians, really, he's, he's trying just to encourage them all the more in the joy that God wants to complete in them. And so Paul, lovely little thing about this letter, he's writing it from prison. So Paul has been beaten. He's been mocked. He's been, putting, he's been put in chains and he actually sees this as, I mean, Philippians is where we get this wrestle where Paul's like, man, uh, I'm either going to get 
set free from this prison or I'm going to be executed. And he kind of can't wrestle, he can't wrestle the ground. Which one's going to be better for him? He's like, well, if I died, like, I'm actually be kind of spectacular. You know, I get to go be with Jesus right now. But he considers it his sacrificial response to saying, no, but I suppose that I ought to keep living so I can keep doing the things that God would have me do. So this is, this is the Apostle Paul for us. He is, he is so in the mindset of like, how can, I, how can I choose the we over just pursuing like all of my things that I want to accomplish? So in Philippians chapter one, we hear this starting in verse, in verse one. I'm gonna kind of go through verse one, four, and five. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, Always in prayer of mine for you all making prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, this doesn't make a lot of sense the way that I just strung that together. Um, But one of the things I want you to pick up on is how Paul uses the word all when he's talking about the church of Jesus Christ. He, He does not see himself as separated from the church that's in Philippi, even though he himself is in prison. He uses the word all. He uses the word partakers all these different people who are participating with. He has these plural words where he's addressing the church at large saying, hey, always in every prayer with every person, all of us together now, he's, he's trying to beat into our brains what we talked about in one of the first values that we unpacked, that we're family. Because one of the main things that we saw in the, in the message that we're family is that um, through Jesus, God is actually trying to re-family the world. So it's, it's not just a matter of your own personal salvation. While that in and of itself is significant and it's powerful, we're never going to try to undermine that. But if you define your salvation as only what's happened to you, you're missing the totality of what Jesus is trying to do in bringing us all together. There is a reason the church, the ecclesia, is the called out ones, the people who gather. It's important that we get together and we see each other face to face because this is something that we ought to do together. We are a family. This church belongs to one another, but it's not just that we have this mentality that it's a family. It also has to be on the mind of every individual to say the family is more important than just me. So Paul says, he's, I'm making this, I'm making this uh, plea to God on behalf of you. He's always putting others in front of himself. He says, I'm, I'm sure this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, you all, because I hold you in my heart. You are partakers with me of grace, both in imprisonment and in the defense of the confirmation of the gospel. The first thing that goes away when we become members of the household of faith is our rugged individualism. I'll say it this strongly. Individualism is the first casualty of the resurrection. So there no longer gets to be this, look at what I made, look at who I've built myself up to be, look at me, look, we, we, are, we are robbing attention that belongs to Jesus when we tell the story this way. When we so get caught in this idea that like I am the center focal point of my own life and my own story, what we're doing is we're detracting from something that belongs to Jesus. And that's a dangerous place to be, isn't it? I love Paul's response in Philippians 1.12. I think it's the biggest we over me statement that there is in Philippians. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. This is just another one of those, come on, Paul, kind of moments. He's like, hey, what's happened to me? Well, what did we just talk about? What has happened to Paul? He's in prison. He's being beaten up. He doesn't know what's gonna happen in his life Next, in, in 
Philippians 1.12. It says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest of my imprisonment that it's for Christ. So his first mentality when he's thrown in chains is he's like, hey, you know what? It's actually, it's kind of awesome that this happened to me because think about how this is going to witness to all the Roman guards who are around me. We is greater than me. He's thinking less of himself, more of the people around him. The, the Roman guards who at one point were punching him, who were flogging him, who were beating him up, who were putting chains on his arms. He's like, man, they're going to know about Jesus because of this. Can you imagine thinking of yourself that little amount? He's so caught with this redemptive plan for the people around him that he doesn't even count his own suffering worth comparing to that, that, that which compares to knowing Christ. He's like, man, they, they might come to know Jesus because of this. Not only that, but he says, and, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are now much more bold to speak the word without fear. So his first thought is like, man, awesome. All these prisoners, all these prison guards, they might get to know Jesus because I'm, I'm just dying to myself in here. But then he goes, you know what else has happened too? You know, because they beat me up and they tortured me and they put me in chains and they locked me in the bottom of this prison and I might die here. How cool that other believers might be more emboldened to share their faith. Right, you kind of just picture this like dumb cheeky smile on Paul's face as he's lettering this to the Philippians. He's like, guys, don't worry about me. I'm in prison. Yeah, sure. It's all, like, it looks terrible on the outside, but guess what? It's actually pretty awesome. I'm getting to do all this writing in here. I'm getting to encourage the church. People are getting emboldened by what they're seeing happen to me. This guard might come to know Jesus soon. I've been praying for him. He's like, he's right there. We is greater than me. Paul just consistently has this view where he's not considering what's happening to him. Is this how we approach our life? When we encounter trials, when we encounter persecution, when we encounter things that make us feel uncomfortable, are we thinking to ourselves, man, but how is this building up the body of Christ around me? How is this helping this person come to know Jesus, my Uber driver? Here's the problem. I've never really encountered a person who just assumes that they're arrogant and thinks of themselves all the time. Have you? I mean, I've, I've encountered a few people, sure, who go like, yeah, you know what? I'm just actually, I struggle with pride. I'm working on it. Yeah, I've, I've encountered that. But most people would never articulate, I just think I think of myself way too often. Tell me I'm lying. But I think what we're going to see revealed today is that there are, there are ways that our mind goes to thinking, the ways that we go about self-promoting, ways that we go about thinking about ourselves that reveal what's actually in our heart if we have struggles with arrogance or pride. Here's me fragments and dilutes the story of Jesus where we unites and strengthens. This is Paul's mentality. Paul's mentality is that, man, if I just focus on what's happening with me, it actually makes the story of Jesus less powerful. It actually makes it all just about what's happening to me right here. But rather what I can do is I can get my eyes up off of me. I can focus on the people around me and that's gonna make this story a lot more powerful in the end. We triumphs where, where me, it just, it makes it so much smaller than what it actually is. In Philippians 2, it says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Okay, do nothing. How much is that? Nothing. Do nothing from selfish ambition. This word for selfish ambition, I think we have to be careful how we define this here because what's, what Paul's talking about in, in, the, in the city and the region where the church of Philippi is, there, there is so much like kind of patriotic nationalism going on where there's tons of people who are promoting themselves to run for public office. 
And so Paul is saying, be careful that you do nothing out of your own selfish ambition. And he's using this language to cast your mind, to think about these public representatives that are running for office that do nothing but boast about themselves. We know a thing about that in, in our day and age, don't we? You just, and actually, oh, well, never mind, never mind. Let's not get political this morning. Let's just, I almost wish people would, we're just gonna do it. I almost wish people would just be selfishly ambitious in the way that they ran for office rather than just being like, well, this is what they think. It's like, tell me what you think, right? But what Paul's trying to show us is that, man, there are people in the church, there are people near the church, there's people who are influencing the church that are so self-absorbed and they're so self-promotional in the way they go about things that they are, they're doing harm to what's happening inside the church. Um, here's, here's why we have to be careful in the way we define selfish ambition. Ambition, zeal, fervor, passion is a good thing. Like we want to have that from the Lord. We want to have this thing in us where we're gonna reject passivity. We're not just gonna sit around on the sideline, but we're actually going to engage and we're gonna be zealous and we're gonna, and we're gonna try things and we're gonna go and we're gonna do it. And the way that you know if your zeal or if your passion or if your fervor has become selfish is when you start demanding attention or power. So think about this for a second. How do we know when we've crossed the line, if we're just being ambitious for our own dreams, ambitious for the things we want to do? Or is this ambition really coming from the Lord? Because we ought to be ambitious for the Lord. We ought to do things in his name. How do we know when we cross the line? It's as soon as we start to demand recognition, attention, or power that we know that we've crossed into now selfish ambition. And you know this person, don't you? Again, we never think of it as ourselves, but you know somebody like this in your life somewhere, Right? where you, you are constantly watching this person who is, who is going, oh man, I just need to get all the accolades. I need to get all the attention. They need to tell you that story of how they used to do this thing when they were your age and then they could do this. And, and like, they're just so caught living in the past or living in this like lack of trying to get attention for something that they are robbing actually telling a story of what Jesus could be doing right now. I love that what Paul does is before he goes into do nothing out of selfish ambition, he tells us the story about he himself being selfless. This is so critical. We can't miss it. In chapter one, he says, man, here I am. I don't, I don't consider this a pain that I'm stuck in these chains. I'm witnessing to people. I'm emboldening the church. And what he says in that statement is he's like, man, I'm not actually thinking too highly of myself. And then he commands the church. He makes a demand of them to start demonstrating selflessness or humility. If you're gonna be a person, this is just, this is a helpful thought for everyone. If we're gonna be the kind of people who expect humility out of other people, we ought to first be humble ourselves. There, there is nothing worse than a person who demands humility from a position of power when they're unwilling to be humble themselves, right? Like we've been in those situations before. We've been in those meetings before. In, in the boardroom, in the workroom, in the relationship, in the friendship where someone kind of demands and puts an expectation on you that they aren't willing to live out themselves first. It's hypocrisy, right? It's being unwilling to live in what you're actually calling other people to do. You're not willing to sit in it yourself. Paul here, he's like, man, look at me. I have, I have forsaken everything in my life to, to, to chase after the call of Jesus on my life. And people can see that. And that's what gives him the ground to stand on to ask for this out of the church. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Do nothing out of conceit. Conceit is this pride. It's this haughtiness. Conceit, if I could boil it down to a person, 
It's the person who constantly demands glory for what they used to accomplish in football in high school. And they think that feat that they accomplished in 12th grade against those other 12th graders when they both weighed 180 pounds, they thought that was more worth talking about than what Jesus is doing in them right now. When you're stuck in conceit and you're demanding attention for the things that you've done, you are, you are denying Jesus. You're denying the glory of God to be coming out of you. How, like, how dare we get so caught up and so preoccupied in our own accomplishments that we start to think those are more important for people to encounter than the glory of the Lord coming through us. Like, we just sing in that song. Let the hopeless come to Jesus, all the dead come back to life. Let your glory fill this city. How does the glory of God fill the city? Um, man, maybe there's some way where there's like the, the, the clouds kind of part in a certain way and there's just kind of this radiance that trickles down from heaven and there's like this angelic tone that just comes out and it's just like, oh, all at the same time, right? Maybe that's what it looks like, but probably not. Probably not. Do you wanna know how God is glorified? It's through his people not taking attention away from that which belongs to God. And they're giving the attention where it rightly sits on to Jesus. And someone's like, man, you're just such a kind person. You're like, man, Jesus has been so kind to me. Someone looks at you and they just start to acknowledge the things that you've accomplished in your life. They, they admire your work ethic. They admire where you sit in the position that you sit in at work. And you just go, man, if it wasn't for Jesus, none of this would matter. When you start to use sentences like that, when you let those kinds of things fall to your mouth, now what you're doing is you're taking glory that somebody's trying to place onto your name. They're trying to place attention onto your name. They're trying to give you credit, trying to give you an accolade. And you take that and you give it back to the Lord where it actually belongs. That's how we act in humility. That's what it looks like to not do things in conceit. And it's so hard sometimes. People want to just give you a compliment. People just want to acknowledge something that's going on in you. But we have to remember, church, that everything that we have is a gift from the Lord. It's all been given by grace. It's all been given out of his mercy. Nothing that we have, nothing that we own, nothing that we've been able to accomplish was on our own merits because our individualism died as soon as the resurrection happened. And when we put our faith in Jesus, what we're acknowledging is, God, I surrender all, all to you, I owe. You're, my sin left this crimson stain. You washed it white as snow. You get the credit. You get the glory. You get the attention. Do nothing out of selfish, selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. This sounds really good in a sermon, and it's really hard to live out in practice. Here's what I would guess. In your life, if you looked in your circle right now, it's really easy for you to esteem or to honor or to treat people more highly than yourself that you like. Am I right? And my wife, my family, my kids, people I work with, people that I are friends with, I can honor them all day long. It's easy. Like those things actually just flow right out of my mouth. Like no problem at all. But as soon as I start to recognize that I actually don't agree with everybody in the world, am I alone? And you start to actually look at people across the table for you that I'm like, man, you're just doing some things that are really stupid right now. Like just objectively speaking, that decision you just made, it was a, it was a bad one. It was a really bad one. How am I going to be treating that person as more significant than myself? Here, here's a good gauge. Do you step into a room? Do you step into the place that you work in? Do you step into your family? And do you ask yourself the question, man, what do these people need in order to be successful? Probably not. 
probably just wonder like, man, when do I get to punch out of here? When do, I get to, when do I get to be done? When do I have to be done tolerating these questions? When do I get to just move on from this situation? Like that is our clue that we are, you know, we're getting steeped in our own selfishness, right? But rather what God would have us see in this moment is that every situation we step into is an opportunity to serve somebody else, to have this mentality. No, we is greater than me. Like I'm not the most important person in the room right now. Like, even, even right now in this moment, I'm not the most important person in this room right now. And it is to the detriment of the church when we start to esteem other people more highly than we ought to, rather than the people who are in positions of high up and power to start to see themselves as actually beneath everybody else and willing to serve everybody else in the church. Do you see what I'm doing here? Like it is our role. It is our opportunity. It is our response to what Jesus has done to serve people, to serve other people, to not think of ourselves too highly. I have yet to encounter a successful, thriving marriage where one person sees themselves more highly than they ought. When one person thinks of themselves more selfishly than they think of the other person. I've yet to experience parents who are still in really good relationship with their kids when one person thinks too highly of themselves. Whether that be a parent that thinks too highly of themselves or whether it's a kid that thinks they have it all figured out and they just know how the world works perfectly at 16 years old. I've yet to encounter a boss, someone who people work for, that is, that is loved, that is admirable, that is a good person, who thinks of themselves too highly and more highly than they ought to. I'm telling you, like this kind of pride and arrogance, it is corrupting and it is, it is, it is divisive once it gets into people. The key, the key, um, here, I'll, I wrote it this way, selfish ambition and conceit can't survive in an atmosphere of unity. Selfish ambition and conceit can't survive in an atmosphere of unity. If we actually wanna set a tone of unity, where we say, no, collectively together, we are the body of Christ. We are all seeing ourselves as underneath his main story that he's telling right now. I don't have to get the attention. I don't have to get the credit. It's not me. I'm not the chief. Like the, this, is, this is to the detriment of the American church right now. Like we are not the pinnacle story of, of Jesus telling story in all of human time. Uh, I think C.S. Lewis calls it chronological snobbery <laughs> where we fail to look back and acknowledge like, well, no, the church fathers were really onto something. Uh, it's not like we have it completely figured out here in our 2022 American life. We are not the center focal point, but if we choose to see ourselves as a body, as a family, as we, as we pursue the we instead of just the me, what do I get out of church today? What's in it for me today? How am I gonna be comfortable today? Are they gonna choose the songs that I like to listen to in church today? Are they gonna do the things that, that I, are you gonna talk about the thing that I want to have them talk about today? This would really help my marriage. By the way, you always will know if you're falling into selfishness, if you always think the points of the sermon are about the person next to you. Man, I hope they heard that today. That was good. <laughs> right? Hey, driving home on the way home from church, you're like, hon, did you hear that sermon today? I really like that point when he said, you, what did you think of that, huh? <laughs> Selfish ambition, vain conceit. That's what it feels like in the day-to-day -day because again, nobody ever calls themselves selfish. I've yet to encounter it. But if you're always thinking about this point is for that person, uh, this church is for me, how can this fit my needs, my wants, my preferences? I don't like that they pick these lights, these days, they did, whatever. It's not about me. It's not about my preferences. It's about the we. It's about us together, collectively, seeing ourselves not as robbing any, any bit of the glory that's due from Jesus' name. 
all of us find, our, find ourselves couched in, not our own personal story, not your truth, not the narrative that is happening in your life right now. We're all couched in the greater story of Jesus, what he's doing throughout time, how he's redeeming throughout time. The, the answer and the remedy, it's so, it's so simple. Paul goes into it. In Philippians 2, starting in verse 5, he starts to kind of explain where it all comes from. He says, Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Two things to pull out of this passage right here. Who, though he was in the form of God, in verse 6, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. I think, what, maybe this is just me personally. When I hear that word grasped, I think of like something that I can grasp mentally, like that I can wrap my mind around. Um, and so that's not at all what the word is that's being used right here. It's not talking about that Jesus, while he's co-eternal with the Father, God also himself, he, he, is, he, is, he is the God-man, right? Jesus is not just the point when God uh, all of a sudden steps out of his godliness completely and forsakes it all completely and becomes a human. No, he actually, he, he, he adds on to his godliness by becoming human. He doesn't cease to become God. It's not like he just, it's not like Jesus also, the second person of the Trinity, just came on the scene at the incarnation of Christ, at the birth of Jesus, when, when Mary was all of a sudden pregnant by the Holy Spirit. That was not the beginning of Jesus. John 1 says uh, he was in the beginning. He was there. He was present with all creation. By him, all things were made. He spoke everything into existence. Jesus, co-eternal with the Father, he is also God. Right, this, this is such an important point and this is such a thing that theologians fight about is this phrase here that we see where he emptied himself. But it starts with Jesus having this mentality that he didn't count equality with God this thing to be grasped. Again, it's not like he couldn't understand it. He knows what it means to be God. What this means is he didn't, meet, he didn't understand equality with God as something that he could seize himself. And the imagery that this is painting for us, that Paul is using for us, is that of the garden. When Eve reaches into that tree and grabs the fruit because she thinks equality with God is something that she can take for herself. And the juxtaposition in this moment of rather than being Eve and Adam reaching up to try to be like God, it's Jesus who is the second Adam emptying himself of his godliness, forsaking his heavenly privileges, coming down to earth and wrapping himself in flesh so that he could come to save that which was lost. This is, it's powerful. Like the fact that God somehow, when we plan to do this sermon on this Sunday in Advent, talking about hope, and it was the first week of Advent, the first week we're talking about the arrival, and this is the verse we're going to use. I'm not that smart. <laughs> but there's something that you need to know today is that Jesus, in his infinite beauty, in his infinite splendor and love for you, laid aside his heavenly privileges so that he could come and he could serve those who despised him. It's powerful, you guys. Like think about in the one moment, because in eternity, a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day. So in one moment, Jesus is speaking all of the, all, all of the human experience, all of the universe that we observe. He speaks it all into existence. He makes it all. And then the next moment, he's confined to a birth canal. <laughs> unable to walk can't move. God himself has to be fed by another person, 
has to be cared for by another person, has to have somebody else change his pants. The humiliation that he endured, the, the, the condescension. Do you see that word playing out there? Where he steps down from his heavenly privileges. If you want to test a person's character, if you want to test a person's character, if you want to see if somebody really is a we over me person, give them all the privileges in the world and see how they respond to it. See, because the person with all the privileges is going to do one of two things. They're either going to use that power to separate themselves from those who are beneath them and, and make sure that those people serve to make sure they, feet, they meet that person's needs. Or you think about the boss who just has all the power in the world, who does everything, but he sits in his office all day and just waits for other people to do the things that he wants them to do. And he just says, you serve me. He has all the privilege, all the responsibility in the world. And he says, okay, you're going to accomplish this for me, but he's detached from the work himself. Rather than the servant leader, which is the only kind of leadership the Bible recognizes, by the way, is that which a, a leader or a boss, someone with all the responsibilities, the privileges, the rights in the world, they use that to empower the people that are beneath them to serve the people, to make sure everyone underneath them is, is built up and encouraged rather than cut down. That's how you'll test true character. Like if you just got all those things that your heart wanted right now, if you got all the money that you wanted, you just got the house that you wanted, would you use those things to serve your own means or would you use those things to serve God and whatever he wanted you to use for them? Right? This is the test. This is the test. This, that's the question right there. Because Jesus, even though he is himself God, he doesn't count equality with God, this thing that he should try to hold on to, this thing that he should try and take. Rather, he takes all of those heavenly privileges, his omnipotence, his, his omnipresence being everywhere, knowing everything, and he has to go and he has to be confined to being a little baby that has to grow in stature, that has to learn different things, that has to be fed and cared for and taken care of by other people, all the while never forsaking his godliness. How is this possible? It's a mystery. And this phrase here where he emptied himself. This is, this is what happens. If you're more on the like, if you're more on the like reformed side of things, what, you, what we tend to do with Jesus is we, is we make him all, all God still and really a really small amount of human. And so he was all God. So that's why he was able to do everything perfectly. That's how he knew always what to do it all the time. Right? But if you're more charismatic, what you tend to do is you try to make him completely man, completely filled by the Holy Spirit. And we try to detach him from his godliness he said, that's why he did everything perfectly is because he was completely filled with the Holy Spirit. And the truth is, guys, it's both. And it's a mystery. He's the God man. And I, we're not going to settle that today. We're just completely not going to get to the ground of it today because theologians, the people who are way smarter than me with a lot more letters after their name than myself, right? After mine, it's just like Austin Dykeman, BS, which is kind of embarrassing, but it's for bachelors of science, Okay. <laughs> I'll just let that one gut ride for just a sec because that's, that's true. That's true. He emptied himself. Here's, here's the take-home point. You don't have to understand the incarnation fully. You don't have to understand how Jesus was able to dwell in both, in, in both human and godly form, how he was able to take the form of a man. You don't have to understand all that. What you do have to understand is Jesus humbled himself, so so can you. Jesus humbled himself. Jesus chose humility, so can we. Uh, like, this sermon does not have 10 steps to a more humble you. It doesn't have five ways that you can apply uh, this thing to your life so that you can grow in your own humility. There's really just one step, guys. There's one step. And that's recognizing what Paul says here, that Jesus emptied himself. That Jesus came and he took on the form of a servant. That, 
Katie and I were talking about this this week. There's really no like modern language that we could use to really grasp just how far down he stepped. But we do have one picture that gets us close. I'm not going to read the story, but in John 13, you can read about when Jesus comes into a room with all of his disciples. It's being hosted at somebody else's house because Jesus, by the way, when he came down out of heaven, everything belonged to him. He owned everything. All of it was his. And then he was homeless, right? He had to go from place to place. He had to have women help him with every meal, right? I mean, all these different things that were so humbling for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He comes into a house that somebody else is hosting dinner that night. And usually what would have been customary as you stepped into somebody else's house is they would have had servants there. And the servant's job when you first walked in the door would be to wash your nasty feet because all they had were their Jerusalem cruisers, right? Their little Birkenstocks or whatever they were cruising around in and their feet would be disgusting and dirty. And so Jesus, the, the leader of this group of the 12, right? He's, he's, so much, he's already told him he's the Messiah. He's told him he's the Christ. He's told him who he is. And in this moment, there's nobody to wash their feet. So rather than just say, hey, it's not really that big of a deal anyways, what does he do? Puts a towel around his waist. He bends down, he starts cleaning their feet all while they ensue arguing. I mean, how many times does Jesus do something for them and they start talking like, so who is gonna get to sit at your right hand when we're in heaven? Which of, them, which of us among all of us is the greatest? Would you say, Jesus? Like if you just had to object, it's probably not Judas, right? Like that guy, he's shady with the finances and everything else. Like the disciples are always having this competition, this contest of, of who's the best and who's the greatest. Jesus, meanwhile, lays it all aside. He puts the towel on his waist. He stoops down beneath them and he cleans their feet and he serves them like a slave would. Like a slave would. It was voluntary. Nobody made him do that. Nobody told him to do that. Jesus laid aside the privileges that were rightly due his name and he always pursued the we over the me. If we want to be people who are actually transformed by the goodness of God, we have to quit looking at ourselves so much. And this cuts two ways. Either you're in this room and you have a whole track record of really awful things and you're kind of ashamed that you're even in church right now. Guess what? The grace of God, the love of God is available to you today. Praise God. Amen. I've done some shady stuff in my past. Praise God that he doesn't count me according to my history, but I'm now, I'm counted according to the righteousness of Christ. On the second hand, we have a lot of you that grew up in church and you're super religious and you've always been that way. And you kind of look down on people you would never say this, but you kind of look down on them for the mistakes they've made in their life because you've always kind of had it put together. And you're the religious person, you're the Pharisee who's just as much in need of grace as the sinful person with the terrible track record. Guess what, guys? You want to be humbled today? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Not one of us is due a seat even in this own building to come worship him. But Jesus has given it all because he loved us and because he came to serve, not to be served. And so as we gather every single week, as we step into this room, don't quit looking at yourself so much and get your eyes up on him. Get your eyes on what's happening in this Advent season. The, we are sitting in a moment of time in between two arrivals where we get to look, we get to have our hope stirred up because we go, man, Jesus has saved me. Jesus set me free. I get to let my joy swell up because of that. I get to let my hope swell up because of that. I get to love, have like love other people because Jesus has taken my track record of sin and he's, he's erased it. And he hasn't just erased it. He's actually filled me up with a bank account of his righteousness. That feels, I'm not gonna lie to you guys. It feels pretty good to be me right now. It should feel pretty good to be you right now. 
And as we look at this candle and we have hope, it's because Jesus has done that for us. But it's also because we ache for the day when he's going to complete the work that he began in us. Amen? Or we long for that day to come when Jesus comes as King of kings and Lord of lords. Because listen, I love that Jesus came and that he served, but he's also coming to rule. And I'm anticipating that day and I need the previous day. But I'm longing for the day when he comes to establish his dominion permanently because that's going to be awesome. We is greater than me. I'm going to read this for you and then we'll stand and pray. It says that Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve. So we choose to reflect his character. The story we are a part of is greater than the role that we play. Jesus is the hero, so we happily know that it's not about me. Me fragments and me dilutes where we triumphs and makes us strong. Everyone has a role to play in the story to tell. We don't all need to get credit for what we do because it is all for his glory. We support, we trust, we, we unite. When humility is our heart, our first response is to assume the best. So we take ownership, we squash gossip, and we know we won't always get everything right, so we talk to the right people in the right way. Let's stand. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we just ask that you would help us, help us to be humble. There's a lot of different things, a lot of different tricks we could probably do to, to kind of think our, put our mind into a spot of thinking that we're more humble or thinking less of ourselves or thinking of ourselves less. Ultimately, God, we are all in desperate need of knowing that your grace is what's made us who we are today. It is your kindness. It is your love that has transformed us and has set us free. For anybody in the room today that just doesn't know that kind of power, that hasn't experienced that kind of transformation, I pray that they would have the courage today to just lay their life down right now. Man, if, that, if that's you, I just want to give you an invitation to pray something like this where you just go, God, I have sinned and I have fallen short of what you wanted me to do. I've messed up. I, I've, either, I've leaned on myself too much or I've just chose my own way and I've completely rebelled against you. But God, help me as I now come to you and I lay my life at your feet and I ask for you to rule and for you to reign. As you give it all to you, Jesus, I pray that all of us, we, so many of us, we've prayed that prayer maybe a hundred times before in our life. Would we right now just go, Jesus, we belong to you. We belong to you. We're not the main character of the story. You are. And so we give ourselves to you. We celebrate you. We honor you, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.